0: Well, we think of Christmas and we think of the Christmas story. Uh, for those that are a part of our church, you know that this Christmas season, we haven't been looking at the traditional Christmas story, but we've been talking about a very familiar story in the Bible, that of the prodigal son. And, and a lot of that is, you know, the theme of, you know, when you think of Christmas, you think of going home, you think of being home, you think of family. And there's no more powerful story of that, of that whole picture of coming home, of being accepted than the prodigal son. But we're going to see in a moment that not only that, but really it ties together with the whole meaning of Christmas in a way that's even more powerful. And so this evening, I want to look at that story and specifically look at not necessarily the son, but more at the father and how the story tells us about the pursuit of a loving father. It's in Luke chapter 15. Let me go ahead and read. I'll start by reading the passage Uh, This is from the New Living uh, Translation, Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. A younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve. He uh, persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and this man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger." I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran towards his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, I pray your blessing now in our time and our study and reflection on this great story. I pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Now, any of you that are a parent know how challenging it can be to be a good parent. And, and part of that is, I think, made more difficult by the fact that there are so many opinions about how we should parent. You know, when they're a baby, should you feed them every time they cry or should you schedule their feedings? Should be, be strict or lenient? Should you help your child with homework or should you just push them to be self-sufficient? Should you try to be a child's friend or should you maintain the separation of a relationship of a parent? We all wanna be good parents, but what makes a good parent? To start off, you know, I found a little video that I think illustrates maybe some of these questionings, and it shows different parenting styles by showing the different styles between a dog and a cat, and how the different parents will try to teach their offspring how to go down a, um, a set of stairs. So watch this video, see which parenting style you relate to. That's a great, now, now we, which one would you rather have as a parent? You know, I think it's pretty clear, and, Now, now you look at that and you say, what's that have to do with Christmas and the prodigal son? And we're looking at this and we're looking at really the picture of the the father. And many have shown or have commented on that and say that when we look at the story, it's an incredible picture of God's love for us. And And I agree. But I will tell you that the more that you look into it, the picture of God's love for us isn't as simple or straightforward as what it might first appear now, at first we might think, okay, well, of course God loves us more like the dog. And, uh, but then as we get into the story, we might start to think, well, is there a little bit of, sometimes he's pushing us like the cat. And, and But I'll tell you, if you go all the way in, what you're gonna find is that God's love for us is far richer, far deeper than any illustration like that could ever begin to explain. You know, it's, it's a picture again of great love and it's celebrated really throughout the church, you know, in, in history. So it's interesting, you could go back to even an art and see from the earliest days of the church, you have pictures of of the prodigal son being represented. Not only that, but you could go to every culture where the gospel has hit and you have artists trying in every culture representing that. And some of the greatest work of arts are are these pictures that celebrate this this idea of the father's love and receiving of the son. Now, as we try to understand it, I want to start by kind of taking a moment and reflect on The story that we call the prodigal son is actually one of three parables that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. All of the parables are, are speaking of a similar theme. All of them are teaching us about how much God loves and pursues those that are lost. The first parable is that of the Good Shepherd. And it's a story of this, one, of this shepherd who had 100 sheep and one got lost. And, and that one was so important to him that the shepherd left the other 99 and went out into the wild to be able to find that one lost sheep and bring him home. And that heart of the good shepherd is, is symbolized in verse 4. You know, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? The second parable is about a woman who had these 10 coins that, that represented you know, her, her whole net worth. And she loses one of these coins, and she drops everything, tears her house apart until she's able to find that coin. But then we come to this last of these parables, the story of the prodigal son. And the question is, when we look at it at the surface, what, what strikes, what's striking is that the father really doesn't seem to pursue the son in the way that what we see with the shepherd or with this woman. You know, the son comes and he says he wants his inheritance and the father doesn't really argue. He gives him what he wants and lets him leave. And then after the son has left and he loses everything, the son doesn't send anyone out to find him. He doesn't send any kind of help. He just, in fact, we're told later on that in his poverty and need, no one gave him anything. And that seems to be even the father. Now. In this story, we have those pictures, and it's that great story of the, you know, picture of the father embracing the son when he returns. But yet, even as we look at that, we have to say, why didn't he pursue him in any way? You know, why is it that we have this great statement about saying, if you really love that one, won't you go into the wilderness and search for the one that is lost? And here you have the shepherd being held up, but the father doesn't seem to do that. In fact, it seems to be that the father's actions aren't active, aren't pursuing, but almost seem to be passive. Now, we're going to dig into this, and I think I want to show you that uh, as we look at it, the story isn't about a passive father at all. It's all about the active pursuit of the father. But yet, it seems to be passive. And part of understanding that is we have to start by understanding the, the nature of the son's lostness. And again, because it's about things that were lost. And so how is the son lost in a way that's different than anything else? Think about it. The sheep and the coin were both lost physically. The shepherd and the woman didn't know where they were, and they had had to go find them. Now, let me ask, was the son lost physically? No. And we're going to see in a moment that, that I think the passage is clear, that the son wasn't even lost or was lost even before he left home. So it wasn't that the father didn't know where the son was. He knew right where he was physically. The son was lost not in that the father didn't know where he was, but because the son didn't know who he was. You see, in the first two parables, you have the woman and the shepherd who both had to discover the truth about that thing that was lost, where it was at. When they discovered that truth, they could bring that thing home. In the story of the prodigal son, It's the son who had to discover a truth. He had to discover the truth to find his way back home. And the whole story is about the father pursuing the son in a way to help the son to discover the truth that he needed to be found. So let's go back to the parable. And Jesus starts by telling us again, this is a story of a father who had two sons. And we're told that the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, here's what you have to realize, that at the core of what the son is saying here is, is it, more than anything else, a rejection of his father and a rejection of his relationship with his father. You see, the son isn't just saying, you know, Dad, I want money, and, and I'm, I want it now. I'm tired of waiting, and I want to be able to spend it. It's not just about money. Again, he comes from a wealthy family. He had access to that wealth. In asking for his inheritance, what he's saying is, Dad, you know, when you die, I'll have your money without you, and I wish that would happen now. You see, I want, I want your wealth without any restrictions over the relationship, and, and so let's just pretend you're dead. I would be better off if you were dead because I could have your money and reject you. So let's just pretend that, just give me the money and I'll just treat you like you're dead. Why? Because I think I can make better choices about how to enjoy your wealth and, and how to enjoy it fully, but, but as long as you're around, you know, there's rules and restrictions that come with that relationship, And and so I want your stuff without the restrictions of those relationships. My friends, when you look at this, what you've got to see is that he's painting a picture of something of the way that we sin against God because that's the same we do with God. See, we often tell God in essence, I want your blessings, but on my terms. Yeah, I want the blessings, but I don't want the relationship. I want to be able to come to you when I have a problem and pray to you and expect that you're going to answer my prayer to meet the needs that I have, that you're going to provide for me but practically on a day-to-day level, I want to live life as if you're dead. I want to be able to live as if you have no say in what's right and wrong in the decisions that I make. I don't want you to have authority over my life. I want your stuff without your relationship. Now, as Jesus is telling the story, it would have been shocking to the people listening to hear this about this son that would have in a very patriarchal society the son that would go out and have the gall to say, "Dad, I want your inheritance. I, you know, I want your stuff without you." And uh, and as shocking as that was, even more shocking is the father's response that he agreed to what his son demanded. That you know that he made this outrageous demand, and what we're told is that the father agreed to do. Uh, um, to divide his wealth between his sons. I'm sorry, that slide isn't quite right. Uh, now, now, most of us, when we read this, we don't think necessarily that much of it because in large part, we've read this story before. We're kind of familiar with it. And, um, and we kind of think, well, the son asked what was his, and we kind of think it's normal that the dad gave him what he asked for. But what you need to realize is that the inheritance wasn't the son's, it was not his. It wasn't in a bank account. This was all land and, and, and material possession that the father had to sell. It was the father's wealth, and the father could choose to give it to his son, and usually it would be at his death, at his inheritance. But it wasn't his son's in any way that the son had any right to demand it. And every commentator who has read this that understands anything about Middle Eastern culture, and this, again, very patriarchal society, the response would have been, the expected response of the dad would have been, you know, you, know, you asked for what? He, throw him out of the house without a cent beat him and, you know, leave him, you know, beaten because of this incredible, you know, um, you know demand that he made. The listeners would expect the dad to say to someone, you know, you wish I were dead? Well, then, then I'm dead to you and you're dead to me. You not only have no right for the inheritance, but you have no right to be part of this family. You have no place, you lose your name, you lose everything. And the father's granting of the son's demand would have been offensive to the listeners. They would have been offended that, 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 that the dad would have done this. And so you look at that and you have to say, why in the world would the father give in to these unreasonable insolent demands of the son? And that's one of the hardest questions of this passage. Why did the father grant the son's demand? Now there are some that even looked at this and said, well, the dad is uh, you know, weak and compliant and basically he gave in to his son and, and, and enabled the son's sinful lifestyle. But again, that's simplistic, that's wrong. See, the key thing we need to realize here is that, uh, that our sin is ultimately our rejection of God. It's running away from God and rejecting him and his role in our lives. It's not primarily what we do. You see, it's primarily who we are. It's an attitude of our heart that expresses itself in our behavior. So why did the son grant the father's unreasonable demands? Let me ask, what did the father want most? He wanted a relationship with his son. What did the father understand that the son needed the most? Relationship with the father. The material possessions were secondary. See, the father understood that when the son came and said, Dad, give me my inheritance now, the son was already lost. Oh, well, he was there physically, but emotionally and spiritually and relationally, he was disengaged. He was lost. He didn't become lost when he left home. He was lost when he asked for his inheritance. And the father knew that the son had already rejected the relationship. And so he could have said, well, no, I'm going, not going to do that, or this, or... But he realized, okay, you're already lost. And then the question is, how is the dad going to respond in a way to pursue the son to be able to find him? You See, like God with us, the father didn't just want a son who was gonna show up and pretend. He didn't want a son who would comply externally with the rules. That's what religion often is, you know, this idea, well, I'm going to do the right things, and if I do the right things, one day I'll get an inheritance. I'm going to somehow try to keep in the Father's good graces. Well, no, that's not how we keep our Heavenly Father happy, even as this Father wanted something farther more. And so rather than trying to keep the Son there physically and trying to force him to keep the rules, the Father decided to pursue the Son relationally by giving him the freedom to walk away. See, the father's goal was a relationship with his son. And he was willing to risk letting him walk away in the hope that his son would realize all the things that he was trusting in would let him down. And what he needed most, more than anything else, was a relationship with his father. He was hoping that the son would realize that the emptiness of his choices would reveal to him what his truest need was. The only relationship that would satisfy that need. My friends, that's what God does to us. He gives us freedom. Why, because he longs for a relationship with us and he knows that our deepest need isn't his stuff, nor is our deepest need just moral living. It isn't just going to church and keeping the rules. Our deepest need is a real relationship with him where we embrace him and we relate to him as our God and as our Father. And like the Father in the story, God is willing to let us walk away and reject him, not because he doesn't care, not because he's passive, but because that's his way of pursuing us. I think even in the story, the father knew what was gonna happen. He knew that if he gave his son all the wealth, what his father would do, or son would do, but he also knew the consequences. And he was hoping that the consequences of the empty conclusion would bring the son home. And so what happened? What were the consequences of the son's choices? Well, let's look at what happens. We, you know, we're told that he, his, he rejected the father. That's his a core choice. And the result was he got what he thought would make him happy, and look at how it played out. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to be starved. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Oh, he had pleasure for a season. All sin is like that, but it ultimately leaves us empty. And, and you might read this and say, well, what was the problem? Well, it was, the problem was the famine. Well, no, the problem wasn't the famine. The famine just revealed the problem. You see, here's what happens. Is if things were going well in his life, you go to famine, it's a little more difficult and you, pursue, you know, per- persevere. In the same way, I run across people all the time that will come to me and they'll say, oh, we had this crisis and because of this crisis, you know, our marriage is in trouble or we have this problem in this relationship, you know, things are falling apart. And here's what you need to realize is that, no, that famine isn't the cause of the problem, it's revealing it. You have people whose life are healthy who go through the same difficulty and it's hard, but they persevere, they grow through it. But if the famine is destroying you, You see, God's allowing that to reveal something. He's allowing it to reveal the deeper need. And so the son is in these desperate circumstances. No one gave him anything, and that includes the father. The father could have sent someone out to find him, and he didn't. Why? Because he was pursuing the son by giving him the freedom and then allowing him to not only choose the choice in life, but along with that, the consequences of those choices. And my friends, we need to realize that, again, there may be some here today that you feel kind of like you're in the position of the prodigal son. Everything's gone wrong for you. You know, suddenly circumstances have left you feel like you're eating a slop of pigs and and you feel like no one's there and, and that includes God. And here's what I want you to realize. God is pursuing you. And what may feel like and appear to be distance is actually God giving you the freedom to make choices, but then saying, if you make the choices, there are the consequences. And it's not that God has forgotten about you, but God is trying to make you aware that, okay, the consequences might cause pain, yes, and, but it's not that God is angry or not because he's punishing you, he's not trying to hurt you, he, he's not the one that caused the crisis, In his love, he's giving you room room to make your decisions, but you choose the consequences. And he's choosing not to intervene because he could send a little bit to help you in the crisis, but that's ultimately just covering up the real problem. And he says, okay, I want you to feel the real problem because I want you to come back home to the thing that is ultimately the ultimate real need that you have. He wants us to, in a sense, come to our senses, See that's what it says here in verse 17, where it talks about that the that you know that that what is our need to come to our senses, to, to, to literally to be aware of truth, to see what's real. Verse 17, that's what happened to the son. When he finally came to his senses, it's not that he finally realized that he was hungry. He finally realized what was true, the trueness about his circumstance, and he said, even at home, the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am hungry. And he finally realized what I need to do, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and in you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's willing to humble himself and admit, I've made these wrong decisions and what I really need is a relationship with dad. Now in that, there was an opportunity, he could have turned and doubled down and said, I'm not gonna humble myself or I'm gonna keep trying harder. He could have gone into despair. But there was an opportunity that the father allowed to be able to Get him to come to his senses to see the reality that the real need was his father. My friends, again, that's what God does with us. He brings us to a point where it might not be circumstances, it might be, you know, whatever it is, but suddenly we realize there's an emptiness. And all that we're trying to do isn't filling that emptiness. And God's trying to get to us to come to our senses, to see the reality. Why? Because he wants us to bring us back into this relationship where we could have our deepest needs met. And so what's the father's response to that? We see the pursuit, the stories about the pursuit and the welcome of the father. So as he comes and he realizes he's gonna come home and, and the son might have every reason to fear that he's gonna be rejected, but this is what the father has been longing for. This is what, what the father has, in the whole time he's been allowing certain things to happen so that his son would come home. And what happens is finally we're told that when he returned home to his father while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. My friends, we need to realize that no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've rejected God, no matter how much you've broken the rules, no matter how much you haven't thought about God, no matter how many secrets you have that you think, boy, if everybody knew, they wouldn't accept me, and God knows. And Christmas is a story about God loving God the seeing God the running God the kissing God the welcoming love of the father see the fact of the matter is that all of us fit into this story because all of us to one degree or another have turned our backs at God and as God is our father we've all walked out of the door we've all told them at times to get lost and sometimes we might even think well we're doing a favor going to church and we're keeping the rules and but in reality we've disengaged all of us have been there the only question is we have we come back home if we come back home and let him throw his arms around us. And my friends, if you have any question how much he loves you, how much he pursues you, he is pursuing you. He has brought you here today. Everything that he's doing in his life is trying to say, this is how much I love you. And if you want the ultimate picture of it, this is how much I pursue you. Remember what Christmas is all about. That this is an act of God that isn't sitting back just in heaven and saying, hey, I'm going to wait and I'm going to be there. And no, this is a God that has gone, not only left home, but he's left heaven itself, taken on human flesh, come and pursued us by coming into this world so that he could relate to us and so that he could ultimately die on the cross for our sins. He has done the ultimate thing to pursue us. And the question is, do you understand how much you have been pursued? And how have you responded to that pursuit? Do you understand how loved you are? Do you understand how valued and treasured you are? And do you understand that the Father is calling you home? And whether you have been gone for years, or whether you have just kind of lost sight of it, or whether you've been with them and, and you just be, need to be reminded, do you understand that He's calling you home? That He's calling you to come to your senses and accept the invitation of this loving and pursuing God that loved you so much that he literally came into the world to know you. When we come to our senses, what are we doing? We're seeing the truth. And even what is that picture of truth? Well, to use the Christmas theme, it's that of light. That light has come into the world. And in that light, do you understand what that light means? Do you understand that this light has come into the world? How are you going to respond to it? And I hope this evening that you reflect upon this picture of light, this, the truth that is revealed in Christmas of God's love, of His pursuit of you, and that you respond and you make it your own.